But uh, since it's my second Sunday back, I wanted to share and bring us back together around the table of communion and uh, remind us of a few powerful and important, simple points that we need to keep before us. But I love doing the baptism videos because a couple of things. I, I had a theology professor in Bible college, Dr. Anderson, and his byline was this, my forgetter is much better than my rememberer. And I think that when we see these pictures or this video, so many of us that went through that experience, it is a great reminder of what took place that day in your life and what should be taking place from here on out. Because see, we're gonna, we have the church celebrates two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and we're gonna participate in the Lord's Supper today. And one of the things that the Lord says about the Lord's Supper continually is do this in remembrance of me. See, the idea of a sacrament is that it's something we take that's ordinary and God makes, an, makes it an extraordinary event because it takes us back to remember some salient and important things of his life. For, in, for example, in baptism, we use just regular ordinary water. But if you watch the faces of those people, listen, I was just standing back there just looking around watching your faces and so many of your countenance was just at different points would lighten up and brighten up as you just saw those people go through and go into the waters of baptism. But something sacred happens in that ordinary water. In communion, the Lord's table, something sacred happens. We take these ordinary little emblems called bread and juice. And it's where Jesus comes and says, I want you to come to my table. I want you to dine with me. I want you to eat with me. It becomes kind of a window that we can look through again and, and kind of a display to point us again and again back toward Jesus. And you've noticed that we've probably done communion a little bit more in the last year because I never want us to forget that the foundational place where everything starts in this thing called Christianity, it's with Christ and what he did for us on the cross and through his resurrection. And so today we're gonna come back and we're gonna look at his victory and what that can oftentimes mean for us so that we can experience victory. So if you would turn to 1 John, it's toward the end of the Bible. It's 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, Revelation, if your Bible is like mine, it's gonna look about like this. Really, really thin part there at the end. Page 1481. Just for, is anybody's, is, does anybody have page 1481? Yeah, I didn't. I'll give you $10, no, I'm just kidding. Just to see. First John, I'll give you a little bit of historical information on this in a minute, I'll kind of tie it into the, uh, the brief teaching. But John's writing really to combat a first century heresy called Gnosticism. And he opens this, this passage, I love this, he says, what was from the beginning, what we heard, what we seen with our eyes, what we observed, what we touched with our hands. He says, it's the word of life. And it's interesting because he really wants to underscore and he really wants to highlight for the people that he's writing to in this first century because this is probably uh, 50, years after Jesus has died, he's writing to these Gnostics who believe Jesus didn't come in the flesh and wasn't fully God. 
They thought he was just kind of a ghost or a spirit, but he couldn't come in the flesh. And he says, and it's really the, the three major modalities that we use even today for learning, what our hands held, what our eyes saw, what our ears heard, and then, you know, they, he says, this is the Jesus that we beheld. I want you to skip ahead, though, to verse five. And he says this. He says, now this is the message that we have heard from him, who Jesus, and we're gonna declare it to you, God is light. There is absolutely no darkness in him. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him, that fellowship is the word koinonia, it's closeness, it's relationship, it's partnership. If we say we have this partnership with him, but we walk in darkness, we're lying, and we're not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And get this, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Here's kind of the key verse I want us to look at for a minute. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make a liar of him, and therefore his words aren't in us. I want you to see something this morning as we move toward our time in communion that Christ's victory ultimately is what gives us our victory. That's the only thing that really gives us victory and power in our lives, what Jesus has done through his life, his death, and his resurrection, so that we can experience in our life today. And so many people, they fall and they fail and they sin, and, and that's really not the issue. But the key is that you identify what the issues are. Identify the cause of sin and failure. It's an important to identify those things causing problems in your life to know what the problem is. Because see, this is what I know. We're pretty smart people. This text basically assumes that you know where the problem is when you're struggling in sin and failure before God. And the reason I'm really looking at sin is because this is what I know about me and this is what I know about you and this is what I know about people after being in the ministry for 30 plus years is that every one of us is simply one step away from going back to where we came from. And you can see that throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament. In the nation of Israel, whenever they faced struggles, their default was we want to go back to where we came from. We want to go back to Egypt. And for some of us, you know, we have these other default places. I just want to go back to my former lifestyle. I want to go do what I used to do. I want to live the way that I used to live. <clears throat> and I got to tell you, in the last year, uh, even as I love what's happening here, I again standing back there and thinking, you know, I hope you all stick around for a while because, you know, the fall's coming and this is still, uh, there's a lot of people gone today for vacation and yet I look around and I go, I don't think there's hardly any place to sit. And we got like a month before, you know, everybody's back in school. And so we gotta, we gotta start making some plans and we've kind of kicked some different ideas around, but I think we're gonna have to really make some plans. But I've seen a number of people, for all the people that are coming and God's doing incredible things in people's lives, I've also seen some people fall away by the ravages of sin in their life. Because they really aren't people who will identify the cause of their sin and their failure. 
told this story before, but it's one of my favorites because I really couldn't believe it. I was young in the ministry. And this gal, she comes to me and she goes, Pastor, I just I need some counseling. I said, okay, you know, get signed up and I'll bring you in. So she called and she set up an appointment and we're counseling. And she sits there and goes, I need help in my marriage. I said, I can help you. And, you know, she wasn't that old. She's probably in her 30s. And she goes, I need some help with my marriage. And I said, okay, what's your problem? She goes, well, my husband. That can be a problem, but, you know, I understand. So she starts unpacking a couple of the problems there. But then after a minute, she goes, well, but that's not my real problem. Oh, okay, what's your real problem? Well, I'm shacking up with another guy. And I go, yeah, that's, that's even a bigger problem than what you just told me. And she goes and she starts to tell me these problems that she's having with this guy because she moved with him because of the problems that she was having with her husband. And she's telling me this. And she goes, but that's not even my biggest problem. I go, okay. She goes, I'm sleeping with another guy. No, no kidding. You can't make this stuff up in ministry. So, so, so we're going through this and I'm listening to her sad, sordid, silly story, and by the time she's kind of really unpacked everything, I look at her and I go, honey, you're just dumb. <laughs> and it's not very nice and it's not very pastoral, and I think she's probably one of the few people that I've said, but she's dumb. And we, and we start to work through it. And this is what I said to her. I finally started talking to her, and I said, listen, tell me what's your problem? And she unpacks it all. She knows what was wrong. And we finally got to about, now this is like two hours. I finally looked at her and I said, listen, tell me, what should you do? She kind of thinks for a second. She goes, well, you know what? I, 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 I know I need to st quit sleeping with this guy. I'm pretty sure I should move out from this guy and go back and try and work on my marriage over here. I go, voila, champagne, very good. <laughs> See, you're not so dumb after all. But you know what the next question was, don't you? I said, what are you going to do? And you know what? She never answered me. See, every one of us, loved ones, we have to identify the issues of sin and failure in our lives. Every one of us have got to move from denial, from those things that keep us moving forward in the life, in the love, and the grace of Jesus. And the reason some people get stuck, the reason some people never move forward, and then the reason some people fall away is because they never come to that place where they simply identify the causes. Or they don't say, I gotta work on that. Because the second thing he says here, you gotta take full responsibility. Notice what he says in verse nine. He says, if we confess our sins, Underscore, underline, highlight, circle that in your, in, in your Bible there. It's not your spouse. It's not your children. It's not your job. It's not your boss. It's not your friends. It's not your family. Fill in the blank. It's not them. You and I have to own our stuff. To move forward, I gotta begin to take responsibility for those things that are happening in my life, those things that are causing me to struggle, fail, lose my place. Have you noticed, I think it's probably really since about the late 70s until now, we have become the decades, we have become the people, especially the boomers of which I'm a part of, we've become the generation of excuses and blaming and saying every problem that we have is because of this, that, or the other. We will do anything to avoid responsibility. We have become so gifted at it. 
Is that true or what? Yeah, I thought you'd probably agree with that. As a matter of fact, I, I got this post from my mother-in-law this last week, and I just, I just laughed. On her post, she, 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 she has diabetes, so she reads this diabetes magazine. And they quoted researchers on eating behaviors found in children. They said this, that children were more likely to disobey instructions and be aggressive children and act out if they were fed chicken on the bone than when given the same amount of chicken cut in pieces. I said, again, you can't make this stuff up. Because when she posted, I posted back and said, can you tell me what mag, where'd you get that? I wanted to make sure she wasn't making it up. The research goes on to say that biting with the front teeth pushes facial muscles into a position of aggression just as a dog when it prepares to fight. Yes, and doing this can make a child feel and believe and behave more aggressively, the researchers said. You'll notice that this has come in the last number of years. You wouldn't have heard this stuff in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Can you imagine? Yes, officer, I know. I just, I just cleaned their clock and I assaulted them. Uh, judge, you'll understand. I did all that because, well, you know, when I was a little boy, I had to eat chicken on the bone and my mama didn't cut it. <laughs> well, the gavel drops. I understand. Or the policeman, oh, well, okay then. We'll just let you. Do you get what I'm saying? Somewhere along the line to experience God's best and success and to be able to grow and move forward in Christ, in life, we've got to identify our flaws, our sinfulness, and be able to, well, be responsible for them. Because see, the voices of today, the research of our world, of our culture that speak the loudest, teach us to buy into this stuff, that we are not responsible for the way we are. It's something else, and we find loopholes anywhere and everywhere, and we make excuses, and it's so easy to blame others. See, that's why John's writing here. He says, it's our, it's your, it's mine, own it. Because see, these Gnostics, one of their false teachings was this, and it really infiltrated the church, and that's why John and other writers had to come strong against it, because they started saying things like this, your body is evil, and your spirit is good. Therefore, guess what you can do? That's where the idea of eat, drink, and be merry came from, because tomorrow you die. Tomorrow your body dies. Therefore, whatever you do with your body doesn't affect you. It's not wrong. It's just your body. And the problem is, is John's writing to these people and says, no, that's not true. Because see, biblically, this is what we understand. This is what we know. Our body is amoral. There's absolutely nothing wrong with our body. It's our spirit that is sinful and needs the touch of the Holy Spirit of God and the regeneration and to be made alive in the life of God's Spirit through Jesus Christ and the work that he done. And see, it's so easy for people to kind of move in the same dimensions today and we begin to act just like the Gnostics. Well, this is what I believe. What's wrong with doing this or that or the other? And then we wonder why we struggle so much, get so frustrated in our Christian walk. And, 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 and this isn't new. 
This is probably written about 94, 95 AD. Like I said, probably 50, 60 years after Jesus has resurrected and ascended. But I mean, just go back to the beginning with Adam and Eve, and they're in the garden. God says to them, he walks with them. He oversees them. He loves them in the cool of the evening. He comes and he talks to them. And he says, don't touch this tree. And so they touch this tree and they enter into willful disobedience and sin against God because why? They want to do their own thing, go their own way. And so the Lord comes to them, not as an arresting officer, but as a loving father that simply wants to bring them back to him. And he says, what's going on here? How did you know that you were naked? Because they were hiding. And then he says, what's going on? And what does Adam do? The first thing he does is he doesn't take responsibility. He says, it's that woman you gave me. And what I love about this is there's not a chance in the world that he could have married the wrong person. She was the only one. And yet he passes the blame. Which ultimately, what's he saying? You know, God, it's you. Because you gave her to me. And so this is, this is how life happens. But it's the picture of so many. They don't want to take responsibility. They don't want to own their stuff. Now hear me. Look at me now. I understand very clearly from my own life and from other people's lives I believe there are reasons, there are people influenced, there are systemic family issues that we experienced, abuses growing up in marriages that have a bearing on where you might be today. That we have, many of us, have been imprinted by some things that are ungodly and not even good for our lives. But what I want you to hear, based on this passage, based on 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where it says, behold, when we come into Christ, because he has established a new creation through his life and death and resurrection, he says, you can be a new creature because you are a new creation in Jesus. And here, listen, you and I, we don't have to be, we are imprinted by our past, but we don't have to be chained to it. In the deep recesses of our soul, when we begin to take responsibility, when we begin to look to Jesus, guess what happens? And we take responsibility. He says, I can bring healing to the deep recesses of your soul. You don't have to be a victim of anyone or any circumstances anymore. That's what Jesus came to do. But after you take responsibility, there really probably, as the scripture here says, there, there needs to be confession. He says, in verse nine there, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. The word confess there, it's the Greek word homologeo. Say that with me, homologeo. You're now a Greek scholar. It's two words, the Greek language is very picturesque and very powerful in, in, its, in its verbiage. But it's really two words put together, homo. Two, it really means one, in agreement, alike. Logeo, lagos, is what we get our word speak or words from. 
So what it really means, when he says confess here, the idea is that you speak in agreement with what the Lord says about whatever you're confessing. And this is the crux. This is the problem so many people have. They don't want to agree with God on what he's saying about what they're confessing. How many people do I sit in with my office? How many people do you sit with that you tell them in a very God-honoring, person-building way, that is sin, and they want to argue with you? No, I'm a special case. Or I went, on the, I, I went online, and, and I went to the internet, and I found someone that agreed with me. Have you ever heard that one? See, when it comes to confession, loved ones, there's no excuses, no alibis, no rationalizations. You're not a special case. If Jesus is tapping you on the shoulder about it, you say, yes, I agree, that's, that's not good for me, that's sin. People say, well, you know, I just, I just couldn't resist. I mean, you saw that, sweetie, ho, ho, ho. Or you saw that guy, or you saw, you know, I just like... I couldn't resist. Whatever it is, can I tell you something? The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that there's no temptation, there's no test that's overtaken you, but isn't common to man. But with everything we face, God says, I'm always going to give you a way out. The key is, will you take it? And you begin to see that throughout the Bible. Whenever anybody slipped, failed, or sinned, guess what? There was always a way out. They just like, well, like you and me, and we're like them. We, we don't always take it. Titus 2 says, what's one of my favorite scriptures, is that God has now given us the grace to say no to unrighteousness and ungodliness. I don't have an out because I walk with the Savior. And he empowers me. But it can be hard for people really to confess and come to this agreement with God due to pride. Simply acknowledging that they're a sinner. I don't like saying I'm a sinner. Sometimes we kid around, but we'll do this, you know, we'll be in a group and we'll be talking sometimes about how, you know, that's really what we need to do. It's kind of like the AA people, they come in and say, hi, I'm Terry and I'm an alcoholic. And we need to come in really as Christ followers and say, hi, I'm Terry and I am still a sinner but I'm saved by grace. But that's hard. See, a lot of times it's easy just to say, well, yeah, I've sinned a couple of times. But you see, and we, we say this all the time too, uh, we, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's who we are. That's what we do. And that's what Jesus came to dispel. And see, confession becomes really important, loved ones, in a lot of ways. Because what it really says before the Lord is, I need you, I need your touch. Uh, this is who I am. I need your perfection in my life. Have you ever noticed how hard that is to do with friends and family too? To just admit you're wrong? You know why that is? It's because we have so much pride in us. How often, how good does it feel after a fight or something? You just, you just kind of belly up and buck up and you go, man, I was wrong. I am sorry. Would you forgive me? Isn't it amazing how that just kind of changes everything? And yet for so many, that's so hard. You know why? Because it leaves you open. It leaves you vulnerable. And it shows you are humble and broken. And most of us don't want to live in that dimension. 
But that's where you have to live if you want to get through the brokenness of your life. Now, let me tell you something about this confession verse. You know, early on in my life, I, in my Christian walk, it always made me nervous. I didn't really like it because I always, I lived under this cloud of guilt. Like every time I sinned, I, you know, okay, God, I, I, forgive me for, you know, for, for that or for this or driving fast or whatever it was I did, some bigger things than that, but we won't go there. But, but I, I, just, I just had to confess everything. And then at night before I'd put my head on the pillow, I'd get by my bed and go, oh, God, forgive me for this and that and the other. And, and then I'd rack myself, oh, did I forget anything? You know why I was so concerned about that is because I thought if, if, if I harbor sin in my life and I don't confess everything, what's going to happen? God's not going to hear my prayers. God's going to remove himself from me. And that's not true, loved ones. See, this confession is something you don't do it for Jesus. You don't do it for the Father and the Spirit. You do it for you. Never forget that when your sins were washed away, when you made a decision to say, Jesus, come into my life, I'm a sinner, forgive me, that dealt with your past, your present, and your future. Why? Because Jesus isn't dying today for you. He's not going to die next week for your sins today. He died 2,000 years ago for your sins now and into the future for you and everybody in this room and all of humanity who will appropriate it because they come to Jesus. So we can live in that freedom. What does confession do? It's a catharsis. It's a way that opens me up and makes me vulnerable and broken and humble before the Lord. I can't do this on my own, Lord. And as I begin to confess, guess what? I don't have to walk with any guilt and shame because I know I'm forgiven and now I get it out and so I don't have to worry about being found out because it's been removed by the blood of Christ. Do I still confess today? Oh, you don't know. (laughs) All the time still. Because there's just something that I know I'm cleansed by the blood of Christ, but I never want to forget what that cost. And I don't want to have to carry around the stuff that I do when Jesus has paid for it. Now know this, that Jesus' sacrifice was enough. I don't have to add anything to it. Because you see that word all, Jesus' death and sacrifice was enough to handle everything, to forgive all of our sins, failures, and foibles. It deals with every area, past, present, and future. Never forget that. Otherwise, you're gonna live a life that's racked with guilt and wondering if you're measuring up. I wanna read a passage just a few pages over. Because see, this is part of the problem as well that we can't forget. Not only are we sinners saved by the blood and the life of Jesus, by his grace that empowers us to move forward, but we also have an enemy of our soul. Now this is, quote, end time stuff, but you have to understand the book of Revelation has present tense application, 2,000 years ago application, as well as future application. Because here we get to pull back the curtains, peel off the veneer, and see the way the enemy of our soul works. Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 10. It says, then I heard a loud voice in heaven. Now, this is John 
the disciple who was closest to Jesus, the one who wrote the Gospel of John, the one who wrote the first John that we were just reading from. He's probably in his mid-90s right now, maybe even older. They don't know for sure, but he's an old man. He's been exiled on the island of Patmos. So he's sitting there, and he's watching. He's, 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 he's a prisoner, and he's probably seeing all the devastation going on across the way from the island of Patmos. He's far removed from the church. And God gives him this revelation of end time. But he gives him, but he says this, he kind of gives us this great insight into the enemy of our soul, and he says this, verse 10, then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah Jesus have now come. Because the accuser of our brothers has been thrown out, thrown out of heaven. He's the one who accuses them before our God day and night. Hear me, that's the work of the enemy. Sometimes you are always feeling guilt-ridden. Sometimes you feel like you don't measure up. There's two ways that that comes about. Well, maybe three. It's the voice of the enemy that comes through his cohorts, not him personally, because he's not omniscient and he's not omnipotent and he's not uh, omnipresent, so he's not necessarily dealing with you, but his cohorts, they can send these things called fiery darts and telling you what a louse you are, what a loser you are. How could you say you're a Christ follower and do that? Or some of us hear the voice of ourselves. Some of us are our worst critics, and the enemy doesn't have to deal with us because we're already putting ourselves down. We're already talking ourselves down, telling us how bad we are instead of listening to the life of Jesus that says, I am making you a new creation. And then some of us have to deal with voices from our past, people that have put us down. But notice how you win the victory. But they conquered him, who? The accuser. How? By the blood of the lamb, Jesus. And by the word of their testimony. This passage reveals that the enemy of our soul, he is, he is unrelenting. The battle will take place, loved ones, in your life until the end of time or until you die and go home. You cannot forget that. There is a battle for your life and your soul. And Satan and his cohorts will be unrelenting until the day you die. And as we prepare for communion this morning, I want us to be reminded of our source of victory. And that it comes through, really, two of these symbols that are represented. See, the key is no longer that he can accuse us before God, but he does continue to attack and accuse us within ourselves. And we have to live with that voice in our head. So what do we do? Well, the first thing he talks about here is overcoming by the blood of the Lamb. Now, if, if you're our guest today, or maybe you're newer here, in Christianity, you hear a lot about the blood of Jesus, the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb of God. Now, when I first came to this whole thing called Christianity in my teens and started to be able to really listen and hear and kind of get a grip on what was going on, there was kind of this thought like, man, what am I dealing with? Some kind of slaughterhouse religion? I mean, it's the blood of Lamb. Yeah, it's the blood of Jesus. And no, we're going to receive communion. And it represents his blood. And I thought, it's ghastly, it's morbid, until you understand the power 
and the meaning of it, which starts all the way back. You actually see it in Genesis 3. Remember when they sinned, what did God do? He, he, made, he killed the first animal, first death. Is seen in the Bible, an animal that God kills, sheds its blood, and then takes the skins to cover Adam and Eve before he um, re- removes them from the garden. And then you see in Exodus chapter 12, where it's the Passover, and they had to kill lambs, and they had to put the blood on the, uh, over the doorposts so that when the death angel came through to destroy the firstborn of Egypt, God's people, the Hebrews, their firstborn would be saved. And if they didn't have that blood applied, they would die. It's the same for you and I. If we don't apply, receive, appropriate, believe in what Jesus has done on the cross, we die. That's why we're talking about it this morning. I never want you to forget. Because see, in the, in the probably the mid-80s until probably recent years, there's been a wonderful renaissance and resurgence of focus on the cross of Christ. But for a lot of years, you know, a lot of churches, it was almost like they would never do communion on Sunday morning. They wouldn't have any crosses because it was too gory. It was too gruesome. We don't want people to have to deal with that. But the interesting thing is that's the axis. That's the crux. That's the, that's the historical hinge that everything of Christianity turns on. And that's why I never want us to forget. And we will spend times like this on Sunday morning refreshing, renewing our thinking on it. The old song of the church goes like this. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. 1 John 1, 7 there says, if we walk in the light... The blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. Hebrews 9 says that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission, there's no no removal, there's no power to remove the sins that stain our life. But here's the question. Did you know that Jesus shed blood in more places than just on the cross? Let me give you a few of them. First, there's the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke chapter 22, verses 42 to 44. Jesus, it's evening and it's, and it's the night. He's in the garden, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and his struggle was with his will. If you remember that ultimately his prayer said this, Father, if this cup can pass before me, let it pass. And, and we don't know how it exactly went, but at some point there was a comma. And he goes, nah, not not my will, Lord, but your will be done. And this is just hours before he's going to die. See, this battle was won by Jesus, and he began to reverse everything concerning the shame and the strain and the stain of sin that touches our lives, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Dr. Luke tells us literally that Jesus, and it's interesting that the doctor would make a point of this, that Jesus sweat drops of blood. Medically, it's been seen where a person facing just an extreme death or stress for any period of time, literally the capillaries in their forehead can explode due to the pressure and the stress of what they're facing. People go, well, was it, was G- did that happen to Jesus because he knew he's going to die this gruesome, awful death on the cross? Could be. Was that the will, why he wanted to get out of it? I don't know. Might be. But I'll tell you what I think. I think it was more about this. 
that the very fact for the first time, remember, Jesus wasn't born at Bethlehem. Jesus came in the flesh at at Bethlehem, at Christmas as we know it and celebrate. Jesus is eternal. He always has been. He always will be. He is not created. And in 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 this essence of God, the beginning of everything, which has no beginning, they've always been, which is really hard to fathom, but these guys, the, the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have lived in total communion. They've never been separated. One of the hardest things when I have to deal with families in death is to sit across the table or sit on the couch next to the spouse and they'll say this, my loving husband, my beautiful bride, it's all I've known for 30 years, 40, 60 years. And now we're we're separated. I gotta get up without them. Can I tell you what I think? I think that the, 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 the stress that Jesus felt and experienced there was because he was being separated for the first time in eternity from his Father and the Spirit. And then he had to take on the sins of humanity in the world. And he was the sinless one who knew no sin. Jesus fought there in the garden. He shed his blood there. He fought this battle of the will and he won it in the garden to lead us back to the Father. He was separated so we wouldn't have to be separated. I'm sure there's some of you here today, probably every day it's possible you get up and you face the battle of your will. Am I going to stick with this? Am I going to believe and trust and serve Jesus today? Or am I going to go back? Am I going to decide to do my will or the will of Christ? And loved ones, what I want to tell you today, that because of the blood of Christ was shed in the garden, guess what? The battle for the will has been won. It's been won for Jesus. Jesus won it for himself and he's won it for you. Walk in that power. There's another place where his blood was shed. On the Jerusalem pavement, you'll see it in Matthew 27, 28 and 29. It's where the soldiers played this game with Jesus and they wove this crown of thorns and what does it say they do? It says that literally they crammed it down on his head. What were they doing? Well, from their perspective, they were taking this criminal, framed criminal, and playing king for a day. ha, ha, ha. Fun game, huh? But I think there Jesus understands what it's like to be caught in the middle of games people play. Maybe some of you here, maybe you're here at Creekside because you've been in churches where they play religious games. Has to do with politics and whatever else. Or maybe you've had to deal with on-the-job politics or family issues that turn into power plays and power games. And you've been hurt, you've been caught in the crossfire, you feel like you've been steamrolled, beat up, run over by it. But hear me, loved ones, his blood was shed to bring healing from those experiences. His blood was shed 
to give you strength to do the right thing and for you to begin. Maybe you can't do it totally, but somewhere you have to begin for your purposes, for your health, and for your ability to move forward and not to become a toxic soul where you have to make a decision to say, I am going to, I'm going to forgive the game players. I'm going to forgive those people that might be hurting you right now because you cannot control what they do. All you can do is what Jesus did. Don't get it, don't understand these games, these power plays, but oh God, Father, forgive them because they really don't get what they're doing. His blood was also shed on a whipping post. John 19.1 tells us about it. And it's really a reference to Isaiah 53.5 as the prophet Isaiah is looking down through the corridors of time and he makes this statement that's prophetic about the person of Jesus Christ. The whole chapter 53 is prophetic looking ahead. And he says this, by his wounds we are healed. We love that. But sometimes it discourages us too, doesn't it? We pray for people to be healed, don't we? Doesn't always happen. And you got to hear this, loved ones. We, uh, we pray for people, but it's a mystery. Hear me. I don't care what anybody else tells you. Most of them are smarter than me, brighter than me, got bigger ministries than me, but there is no formula that we can come to to force a sovereign God to answer our prayers. I'm sorry. And that's where so many people get discouraged and despondent. God, I prayed, I believed for this child, for this adult, for this other Christian, for my non-Christian. Just Listen, when you really come to understand God is sovereign and that we don't understand his ways and we never will because he's God, life will get a lot better. Because see, our faith and our confidence is that God not only secures this final victory with our spiritual healing that takes place now. Some of you live with chronic pain. Some of you live, you've got a disease right now and you have not been healed. But hear me, our ultimate healing comes down the road. Right now, what some people forget to tell you is that when Isaiah is talking about this, by his stripes, by his wounds we are healed, it isn't just physical, it has to do with mental, emotional, spiritual. And one day, we get the ultimate healing because of his blood. Last one is the cross. We all know that in the, in the four gospels. But I want to read to you just Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, 13 says this. And when you were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, who? Jesus made you alive with him, forgave all of your trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with his obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it out of the way by the nailing it to the cross. And this is what he does. He disarmed the rulers and authorities of Revelation 12 and disgraced them publicly and he triumphed over them for you and for me. See, I love that, that cancel, that word cancel or erase, it's a technical term for that day. It had to do with the idea of washing a piece of, of parchment so that it could be written again. But when they cleaned it, it was so clean you could never tell that it had been written on. And that's what Christ's blood does for you and me, loved ones. It, it removes everything. 
Isaiah, again, in chapter one says, that come, let us reason, so that when he forgives us, we can be washed whiter than snow. Christ's blood washes away any record of previous sin or charges against us. That's why the psalmist said that our sins are as far away from God as the east is from the west. You go up to him and say, God, I'm sorry, I did this again. And he goes, did what? Oh, that. I can't remember. In that sense, God's forgetter is better than his remember. You don't have to live under the condemnation of that. And you need to see and understand that every point of human bondage, addiction, and unfairness is dealt with through the power of his life and the cross. And when you are dealt with squarely unfairness, guess what? At some point you get to say, I need to be like Jesus. I'm hurt, I'm broken, I hate this, but I need to move toward forgiveness. Because that's where your healing will begin to come in. See, by Jesus' performance, loved ones, we're invited into a new covenant. Not a contract, a new covenant, a new promise. But to receive that covenant, you have to agree with it. So what's the new covenant? It's simply agreeing and to believe in Jesus. To place our lives with him, saying, your blood took care of all this for me. We get baptized once, most people. Why is communion done again and again? Because just as our bodies are strengthened by food, our spirit needs to be strengthened with the reminder of what Jesus did for us regularly by participating in communion. And here's the real kicker. It's because we keep sinning. How many of you have sinned within the last 24 hours? Raise your hand. Well, I got some holy people in here. Let's go back. How many have sinned in the last 48? I'll get you all. See, we do communion, loved ones, because we keep messing up and falling down. And it's at those points where I am tempted to despair. I'm tempted to think, God, have you given up on me yet? I'm tempted to think, this time I've gone too far. You know what Jesus kept saying? No, just keep coming back. Come to the table. Come to the table. Come to the table. Don't remember your guilt. Don't remember your failure. Not your shortcomings. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Now hear me. This is not an excuse to go, que sera, sera, whatever sin I do will be, will be. I really don't care, why should he? I just made that up. That's pretty good. Here, this is where a lot of people get messed up and they get mad at God because verse 7 of chapter 1 of 1 John says that he purifies us from all of our sins. It's the idea of an ongoing cleansing which we all need. But hear me, while you are cleansed from the penalty of sin, don't ever forget you still have to face the repercussions of your sin. And I can't tell you how many people go, oh, I thought God forgave me, and I still got to deal with this. Duh. That's why, that's why it's so important, loved ones, that we come back to Jesus all of these times, every day, but times like this, and go, I remember what you did. And that begins to infuse us with his spirit. 
it begins to blow wind into our spiritual sails again because we never forget the power and the blood that was shed for you and for me. Amen. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and